You're listening to the Sound On Sight Game of Thrones podcast. This week, we're talking about Kissed by Fire, Season 3, Episode 5. And joining us is Scott Muslow, the entertainment editor for the week. Welcome to the Send on Sight Game of Thrones podcast. This is Kate Kulzik, TV editor for Send on Sight. I'm joined as ever by Ricky D, general editor. General editor. Hey, Kate. And this week joining us to talk about Kiss by Fire, season three, episode five, is Scott Meslow, the entertainment editor of the week. Scott, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. Now, before we start, we always like to say, just preface, I've read the books. Ricky has not. Scott? I have read the books. Wait, wait, Kate. I've, I've read the books since the last episode. Oh, you have? No. All of them. No. Oh. <laughs> must have been a lot of overnights. <laughs> I was going to say, like, we. I was talking with a little bit about Harry Potter with Scott earlier. It's like, you got a time turner in there somewhere to, to get through those things. I can't get through book five. It's sitting next to my bedside table just waiting for me to, to have time to crack it back open. Can I ask how many pages book five is? I can check for you right here. The, the hardcover is... A thousand and sixteen. That's the appendices. If you go to the the book right, end of the book before the appendices, we're at nine hundred and fifty nine. Yeah, that's nine hundred and fifty nine pages. Too much for me. <laughs> They're maybe, big pages. Maybe when I'm not working three jobs. So, but for any of those who are are concerned, don't worry. We will not spoil anything from the books. Keep it strictly uh, to the to the show. Um, we also wanted to mention we got uh, an email from I want to say Clint. Clint, right? I was going to say Clive. Clint. No, but, no. Well, we had two emails. There was Clint and I think Clive, which is really funny. Clint and Clive. <laughs> they, they should do a buddy cop movie, but. Uh, Clive is the dude that designed the website, which is sort of like a map. That was Owen. Each episode, right? That's Owen, actually. That's Owen. Oh, Owen, boy. yes. <laughs> Owen, apparently, it seems like he works for DirecTV, but he has designed uh, a, a website that uh, that has a sort of a map of Middle Earth, and it you can kind of page through the different locations, but in order of the episodes, and it looks it looks pretty cool. I I. I the site actually looks really neat. The map looks really neat, but there's no way to zoom out because I actually want to see the whole thing, but you, you can't do that. So, so Owen, if you're listening, it's really cool. Thank you for bringing it to our attention. I would like to see more of your fine work. I want to see the whole bigger picture, but, but it's actually pretty cool. And th- that is called the, the Game of Thrones, The King's Roadmap. And you can find that at uh, www.direct.tv slash The King's Roadmap. So check it out. Um, and then we also heard from Clint. Is it Clint or Clive? I don't, dude, I, so I many, don't we know. Because <laughs> we got a lot of emails this week. No, actually, you know what? Kate, Clint is our listener who can't rate us on iTunes. Now, 
Yes. Now yes. I, I looked into this. Actually, you do you do not need a credit card anymore. He was worried that he didn't have a credit card, so he couldn't make an iTunes account. You can do that now. Um, so thank you so much for for getting a hold of us, letting us know that you like the show. We very much appreciate it. Uh, if you apparently you do not uh, need a credit card at this point to make an iTunes account. So if you have the time and you want to make one, that's great. But if not, thank you just for letting us know that you're listening. Let's talk about this episode. It was such uh, an eventful one. I know for a lot of people, at least for myself, the book readers. We were waiting for Danny and 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 the dragon and the army. We were waiting for some of these other you know big moments that happened the previous week. But as far as emotional moments go, I don't think you get much bigger than a lot of the things that happened this week. I want to mention written by Brian Cogman, directed by Alex Graves. I really like this episode. Um, Scott, what did you think? Yeah, this this was actually probably my favorite episode of the season so far, um, and for a lot of the reasons you're talking about. As much. It didn't have that same sense of a set piece like we had with the big Night's Watch battle in episode three or the Daenerys scene last episode. But, um, you know, I thought I thought the stuff with Jamie and Brienne was so brilliant. It was um, it was great to see that the fight. It's, I guess we got kind of a set piece with uh, Beric Dondari and fighting the Hound. But um, I thought the ending scene was so great to see the Lannister family kind of together, hating each other. Um, <laughs> I just it just it felt it felt like an episode that was just kind of boilerplate Game of Thrones in that it was all over the place, but it was doing everything very, very well. So, yeah, what did you guys think? I guess, Ricky? Yeah, I'm in agreement. I think this is by far the best episode of the season. It's by far the busiest episode, but I think there's a lot of forward movement. I think there's also a lot of reminders. At least I think there's a lot of reminders because it reminded me of a lot of things I totally forgot about. Um, but the writer of this episode, I checked this on the credits, he wrote, I think, two of the best episodes so far. He also wrote Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things, which was way back, was that season one, I believe, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so this guy, I don't know, this guy's got a knack for writing. He's fantastic. I think he also is, is credited as a story editor for yeah, many of them. Yeah, Brian Cogman, right? Right, okay. Well, I think this episode he wrote by himself. Right. And yeah, he's got kind of the Bible for the show, and he did the big making of book they put out this year, too. Oh, okay, because, yeah, I remember that episode, Cripples, Bastards, and Broken Things, and I, it was by far one of my favorite episodes of uh, the entire, like, three seasons so far. So, I don't know, like, I really, really dug this episode. I like the episodes more so when they when they start arranging the pieces on the chessboard, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not, I mean, I like the big action set pieces and whatnot, but I'm just, um, like, like you mentioned, that, that whole sequence between Brienne and Jamie was just so incredibly heartbreaking, so well acted, so well scripted. So for me, um, Kate, I loved it, loved it, loved it. Well, shall we start there? Yeah. With Jamie Let's and Brienne? It. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Why not? It's like the best scene, I think, of the episode. Well, it's such a, you know, such a significant moment. I know it's something we've talked about in the past couple episodes, Ricky, where, you know, you kind of are, uh, and I expressed this when I read the book, and so I felt too, where you're watching this character who you want to hate because he's done some terrible things, uh, and then he's just so damn relatable and understandable that you kind of can't. And I think this is a big, big moment for that that character for letting the audience in. You know, I don't know that they've really gotten across as successfully in the, the series as opposed to the books the the, the amount of shunning of of that character based on Kingslayer, you know, the, the, the amount of just scorn placed towards him by the entire of the se- entirety of the seven kingdoms. And so therefore the, I, it feels like um, there isn't maybe quite that s- same weight 
of of how much he hates. He's constantly reminded, uh, you know, whenever he's called Kingslayer all the time, it's a constant pain to him. I don't know that they really have executed that as well as maybe they could have, but I mean, it really doesn't matter because the that that scene, just the performance by the by both actors. Actually, I think Gwendolyn Christie is a great job supporting Nikolai Costa-Waldo in that scene. But um, yeah, it's just one of those things where in a book you get to have first person narration point of view. You get to be in their mind. And that's something that doesn't always translate as well when you make it into a conversation. But I don't know. I thought they really, really paid it off. Yeah, no, I think it's by far his best moment period so far that we've seen of Jamie Lannister, because the thing is it follows up the moment in which he goes to see the doctor and, you know, he's nursing his wounds, which is really horrifying. And he just starts screaming in terror. He doesn't want to take the, uh, the anesthetics. And then we cut from like badass son of a bitch, Jamie Lannister to this tender heartbreaking moment in which he opens up to Brienne. So I just, it's not only about th- that specific scene and the performances. It's also about what came before. Yeah, and, and you have to assume that he's carrying, you know, he's delirious in that scene or he wouldn't admit it. Um, and that's actually something I wanted to ask you guys about, because it's my one problem with the scene. As much, it's a brilliant scene in and of itself. It's well acted, it's well written. But as much as Jamie's kind of this iconoclast who doesn't care what people think, I've, I've got kind of a problem with the logic behind why didn't he ever tell anyone this until now? Like, presumably if there was these caches of wildfire all around King's Landing, he had to say, like, hey, the city could get burned down, you need to move those. So I'm not, within the context of the story, I'm not sure why this was a secret he felt the need to keep. Do you guys have any thoughts on that? I have a theory. Well, first of all, he says to Brienne, he's like, well, Ned automatically decided he was sure, right? Yeah, but that's one person. Right, but that's one person. But I think uh, she's the only person that has really let him get close to her, aside from maybe his sister, but that's kind of like different and odd and weird. Yeah. But... (laughs) Uh, Very different. He he's uh, he's you know he's going. I mean, the guy just got his arm cut off. He he's been held prisoner for God knows how long. He's beaten and broken, like physically and emotionally. So I think it took like it took so much out of him as a person. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I think you know they have a they have a bond. But I to go back to what you were saying, Scott. I think the big thing is that he has the 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 Lannister pride. And I mean, and you get a little bit of that with the line. Why should the lion have to explain himself to the wolf? But you know, they don't, what that scene doesn't really do. And it doesn't, I don't think it does it in the book as well either. It doesn't explain why he was sitting on the throne, why he sat down on the throne. I mean, if, if, if it's just, it was a chair and he was exhausted and it's the only chair in that room. And so he sat on the, the throne because I think that is the, the big moment you know that's the big that's the big de- deciding factor in ned's you know read of, of him because he walks in and then here's jamie he's just stabbed the king in the back and he's sitting on the throne um and and so i think if he if that one detail were changed the entirety of that you know that lannister right. stark relationship would have been changed and and i do think that uh, because Jamie's not known for his trustwor- trustworthiness necessarily, if you're not of his family, uh, I, d- I don't think that it's a stretch to believe that Ned would would just write off anything he said like that along those lines as just being a lie to cover his tracks. It just seems like there would be so much physical evidence, literally. If, if there's supposed to be wildfire all around King's Landing, someone seems like someone should have noticed that at some point. 
yeah, I, I know I'm quibbling about the details of it, but it just seems to me there would be so much physical evidence for, you know, if, if there's supposed to be wildfire hidden all over King's Landing, it seems like someone should have stumbled onto it at some point. It was it kind of bothering me as I was watching the scene it, it, at a minor point in an otherwise excellent scene. But, but we know someone stumbled upon it because they used it at the end of season two. That's how they won the battle. Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, because I don't I think that uh, it, it's, a, it's a point. It's a you know clear issue. I, w- I would agree with you there, Scott. But I mean, I think it could just be written off as, oh, we just needed more storage areas because we didn't want to store it all in the Red right. Keep because, you know, I think there are ways that it could have been played off. Um, actually, for me, I only had one tiny detail with the scene that was a little frustrating to me. Um, and I'm sure everybody else probably actually really enjoyed this. But the, the just the body posture at the end of the scene felt really awkward to me. It felt very much like we're not going to show Gwendolyn Christie's boobs. So we're going to have her stand in this particular way to catch in so that we don't see boobs as opposed to how someone holds somebody who's just fainted. Is that yeah, just that me? Very conspicuous. Yeah, no, I agree. When, when there's an actor who clearly has a no nudity clause on this show, you can always, it, it's distracting on some level just based on the nudity of the show otherwise shows all the time. Yeah, because it felt really overdramatic. It felt like right. this, like, swoon moment as opposed to, like, a more physical just reality, you know? So, because I remember, Ricky, you talked about um, people had told you that there was more of a flirtatious relationship between between Jamie and Brienne, and I feel like just the posturing of that is going to launch a thousand shippers. <laughs> But uh, I don't know. We'll see. There were there were people on this show to ship, I guess, than than Jamie and Rian. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm going to totally agree, but I just feel like we're nitpicking. <laughs> like <laughs> seriously, the episode's best moment by far. Like regardless, like it, it did feel totally. like it came out of Young and the Restless. <laughs> so well, I would I would actually say that was the episode's second best scene, personally. Oh, um, what's your favorite? Because I just. I can't get enough of crazy Lannister family dynamics. I have Mm. so much fun watching Tywin and Tyrion and Cersei all snipe at each other and watching him just browbeat his children into submission. And I, I will freely admit, I like my game of Thrones at its absolute soapiest. So when it comes to a bunch of like weird marriage plot lines and machinations, I just, I find that so fascinating, the political unions that are happening. So that was that episode closing scene to me. I, it was such a punch to go out on that. I was so impressed with what do you guys think? I enjoy, um, have I told you guys about uh, the, the fun my sister and I have watching television together, uh, looking for the implied bitch and the implied ladies? Yeah. Yeah. I, I enjoyed the implied bitch of, of the, uh, oh, you're going to marry Loris in that scene. Uh, <laughs> that, that's where you just kind of like, there's an unwritten, you know, right. finger snap, you know. A little bit of a sass moment. When Tywin delivers that. Oh yeah, oh, just with it's a plum. There. Yeah, it's it's yeah. there. There was an implied bitch there. Uh, yeah, I agree. I love watching the, the those those dynamics. And um, you know, as somebody who's who's read the the books, right? You're, I, there are certain of these moments that you're waiting for. There's there. I mean, there are many reasons that a lot of fans have been saying, "Oh, just wait till book three. And for some people, I'm sure that was. You know the dragons burn down is down a city and Astapor, burn down Astapor with a giant slave army. For me, it seems like those two that the two that we've already described. Those are the things I've been waiting for since you know the beginning of the series to get to these sort of emotional moments. And um, yeah, just the contrast of poor poor Sansa right now. She thinks she's going to get married to Loras, who's 
nowhere even near what she thinks. You know, she doesn't even know what that means. And then now it looks like she's going to get married to Tyrion. And um, yeah, I just, I, I, I just love it. Your sister has learned that your new friends, the Tyrells, are plotting to marry Sansa Stark to Sir Loras. Very well. She's a lovely girl. Missing some of Loras' favorite bits, but I'm sure they'll make do. Your jokes are not appreciated. It wasn't my best, but I thought... I bring them into the royal fold, and this is how they repay me, by trying to steal the key to the north out from under me. Sansa is the key to the north? I seem to remember she has an older brother. The Karstarks have marched home. The young wolf has lost half his army. His days are numbered. Theon Greyjoy murdered both his brothers. That makes Sansa Stark the heir to Winterfell. And I am not about to hand her over to the Tyrells. The Tyrell army is helping us to win this war. Do you really think it's wise to refuse them? There's nothing to refuse. This is a plot. Plots are not public knowledge. And the Tyrells won't carry this one out until after Joffrey's wedding. We need to act first and kill this union in its crib. And how do we do that? We find Sansa Stark a different husband. Wonderful. Yes, it is. can't mean it. I can, and I do. Joffrey has made this poor girl's life miserable since the day he took her father's head. Now she's finally free of him, and you give her to me? That's cruel, even for you. Do you intend on mistreating her? The girl's happiness is not my concern, nor should it be yours. She's a child! She's flowered, I assure you. She and I have discussed it at length. There, you see? You will wed her, bed her, and put a child in her. Surely you're capable of that. And if I refuse? You wanted to be rewarded for your valor in battle. Sansa Stark is a finer reward than you could ever dare hope for. And it is past time you were wed. I was wed. Or don't you remember? Well, and that that's my second favorite scene of the episode. And again, it's a fantastic scene, but I love it because... Tywin shows how in charge he is, but not just the character, but the actor, Charles Dance. I mean, his performance is stellar. He's far better than anyone else in a show, and this show is full, full of fantastic performances. So it just speaks volumes for him as an actor. And I love what he says to uh, his son. He's like, you'll wet her, better, and put a child in her. <laughs> and like, you know, it's just the way he delivers the dialogue. And oh my God, Lady Sansa, she is driving me nuts once again. Like, I'm sorry, Kate, we, we talked about this last week, but the Stark women seem to be the reason why there's so many horrible things happening to the point where two kids get murdered in this episode. And and the dad outright says, well, if you hadn't let the Kingslayer go, I would have never had to murder these two kids. Like, I mean, I'm not blaming her because, I mean, the guy did actually, like, kill the kids. You know what I mean? But it's just like they keep on making these strange de de decisions that – that just leads to, I don't know, such horrible things for everyone else. I do feel the need to point out, though, that when Kat released the Kingslayer, first of all, she didn't release him. She sent him off as a prisoner with, with Brienne. And uh, Karstark was about to execute him like he did the Lannisters here. So I don't think, you know, so either if she lets him go, she lets him go. Or if she doesn't, he gets slaughtered in a cage by the Karstark. So either way, they're 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 screwed. So I don't think that you can really necessarily put that down solely to Cat. No, but couldn't she have done it in a way where they wouldn't have known it was her doing? Not you know what I mean? Really. Couldn't she have made that much of a difference? Well, yeah, because I mean 
Well, maybe not. I don't know. Because I guess they they still would have killed the Lannister children because they are his nephews, right? But Well, and also yeah. the uh, the Starks, with the clear exception of Arya, who's so fun to watch, aren't really known for their stealth. That's not how they were raised. That's not the North way. Um, and so, I don't know. Catelyn has shown that she is not very good at scheming. Uh, or again, at, at plots and and pulling things like that off. So I, I don't, you know, it's not like we have Varys up there who could make somebody disappear easily or Littlefinger. Um, so I think really the the way she she did it was about as best as she as she could. Um, but yeah, I don't get. I really, I still don't get your lack of. I don't get your Sansa thing. Like, what did she do this week? That is. Well, Scott, we talked about this last week. I just I yeah. have a problem with her character because I just. I don't like it when someone just sits back and watches all these horrible things happen to them and the people they love. And she's never really done anything. She just mopes around all the time. Like, I'm a big Sansa defender. And I mean, I don't know, for starters, remember, we're talking about a 16-year-old girl that was being manipulated into this like crazy, like this princess scenario. I kind of think of her as like a revisionist Disney princess, where it's like, <laughs> She moves to King's Landing to marry the handsome prince and be the queen, and it's what she's been told, and everyone talks about how beautiful she is and how much Joffrey loves her. And she's put in this crazy situation. Like, I mean, I was I was probably not all that smart when I was 16. I probably could have been manipulated by a bunch of creepy adults into doing things. Like, now I get where she's just, she's just trying to find some solution to get out of it, and people keep manipulating her because she's so important. But she has no power of her own. Oh, I, 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 I agree, but I have to point out her sister and what her little little sister does you know what i mean like it's just sure. i know they're completely different people well, Arya's but... one of a kind Arya Arya's a treasure Arya's a, a <laughs> Westerosi treasure yeah i always think of diamond in the rough taking me to <laughs> to aladdin um shall we should we move to Arya and that badass sword fight yeah, totally. Now, of course, we, you know, Scott and I haven't read the books. We we knew it was coming with that. What was that like, you know, to watch for you, Ricky? You're talking about the Hound fighting Beric? Yep, and then what happens after? Uh, I thought it was pretty amazing because uh, it's like, uh, so from my understanding, um, he's a red priest, which is why he raises him from the dead, which means... Like, for me, that means that red priests aren't necessarily evil and that this magic is also used for good things, I suppose. Uh, I, I, apart from the fight sequence just being extremely well choreographed, I just, it was one of the bigger, biggest shockers for me. I was like, what? Uh, really? No, like, what? Because like, I was like, no, they just killed the guy. We just got introduced to this guy in the last episode. And now he's dead. And now he's coming back to life. And I loved the conversation that took place afterwards in which they pretty much explain that it's the sixth time he's died. And um, in that conversation, they also talk about how they can bring people back from the dead, but they can't bring someone like Ned back from the dead because he got his head chopped off. And you just see the the look of disappointment on Arya. And uh, I mean, that whole thing was just fantastic. I just loved it. Yeah, well, it was a heartbreaker. Well, and I think they did a really good job. It's something that, you know, in that last scene with, with the Lannisters... <laughs> Another day with the Lannisters. Um, they did, you know, there's that 
brief line that reminds the audience of, you know, that amazing scene that we got with, uh, what was it, Bronn and Shay and Tyrion? Uh, was that last season, talking about his first marriage? I think that was the end of the first season. The end of the first season, you're right. Um, when, when we found out about that, and and you know they they felt you know they felt the need that they should remind the audience in this fight sequence. They didn't remind the audience of you know Sander Clegane and the fact that his brother, the mountain, you know, melted his face off, and so he has this huge fear of fire. They didn't remind us of that in any way, other than the performance, which I thought was fantastic. You know, I love that there was that you know when, when the the shield starts burning and he's just he just freaks out you know trying to get it you know he's trying to hold it together as much as he can but when that shield starts to go they do such a this show trusts its audience so much and i think it does this better and better every season and that it's just you know if you're all in by now you're you know that the hound has this thing about fire and so you're carrying that baggage into the scene um but talking about that scene what do you how do you guys feel about magic on the show uh, and Barrett coming back to life because I feel like we're starting to get more and more of that and I wonder especially for you Ricky as a non-book reader how you feel about that stuff coming in uh well I'm glad they're at least explaining sort of like the rules of the magic because I guess like back when the season three started I didn't really understand like why is it that she could only make like one shadow baby monster for example I was like what are the limitations um, I, um, I don't know. I'm, I, I really don't even know how to answer your question. Cause I'm not really sure what we're going to get in the future. Like I'm, I'm kind of mm-hmm. hoping for more magic, I guess, but I, I just feel that if there's so many characters that possess such power, why aren't these characters like taking charge? Why is someone like Tywin Lannister or Rob Stark, like controlling these armies and, they seem to be characters with the most power, but yet so-and-so has black magic or red magic, whatever you call it. So I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah. I think um, that's one of those things when you, when you, when you take something that is a, you know, follows one character for a while and then switches completely to a new character. And when you, when you instead make that jumping in on all the characters every week, um, when at least my experience reading the book was more of you're focused on one story and so you don't notice all this other magic happening all at the same time. And so I think, I feel like, because we cut to, you know, the him lighting his sword on fire with his blood. By the way, I thought a nice parallel to when um, the, the Stannis' sword was not, when they faked that for right. Stannis, but of course, Barrett can actually do it um which i think is very interesting uh another thing they didn't feel the need to point out but i thought it was nice um so when you jump from stannis to um get a reminder you know i'll just talk about melisandre and the lord of light with stannis and then you jump to the dragons and then you're up north of the wall with the warriors it does kind of make it feel all more more um inclusive like there's magic everywhere but you know maybe they need to just um spend a little bit more time with the non magical you know, parts. You know, I think they also could maybe do a better job of, of showing just how like holding on, barely alive at this point, Beric is. And you know, it's we have a priest with the the you know, a red priest, you know, Thoris of Mir with the uh, the the Brotherhood without banners. You have some warg stuff, which is a little more vague, happening up north of the Wall. You have Melisandre, who's not even really around right now, and you have the dragons. So 
I, I'm, I'm a little surprised we don't hear about more magic happening. If, if all this magic is happening in the Seven Kingdoms where there's hardly any presence for the Lord of Light, what must be going on in Mir, where everybody, yeah. you know, follows the, the Lord of Light? Um, but, but you know what, Kate, uh, what you said about Beric, like they do st- say in the episode that Yeah, they is- say, but I don't feel like they show. They showed the wounds, which looked really cool, but I felt like the performance didn't feel maybe as haggard. Oh, I completely disagree. I think his performance delivered well. Like I, okay. I told, like from watching his performance and not reading the book, I could understand that this man is like falling apart. Like I'm assuming he might have seven lives, like a cat, and that's <laughs> it. He's not coming back. You know what I mean? Because he says, he says, I, I lose a piece of me each and every single time. I'm not the same person I once was. So for me, it worked. Okay, I do really like uh, Richard Dormer. That character. Lord Barrick, he's working for me in the show in a way that he didn't in the book. Like he, I think there's, you know, just Dormer has such, uh, uh, such, such charisma, you know, that he's really makes, and there's just some swag to him that I really enjoy and feels appropriate, especially for how everybody else treats him in this world. Um, but yeah, I don't know. So Scott, do you want to talk more about that? The, what, how you're feeling about the magic? Uh, yeah, I guess I bring it up because I, I have kind of like a complicated relationship with the magic in the show as, as a reader and a viewer um, in that like I love I love the dragons and I think it's probably because when they were introduced they were handled with so much weight you know we heard so much about dragons for so long and then they were there and it was like oh my god Daenerys has like the atomic bomb in World War II like this is the game changer for this whole everything and then I to me in, in the story we've seen in the show um, the most problematic moment was Melisandre with the shadow baby which is from the same kind of magic and felt to me like it wasn't set up particularly well. I don't really like, like you Ricky, I don't really understand the rules behind when she gets to use it or what it means. Um, and it, that character to me, I, I just, I have some, some problems with, I think the margins that they're drawing around her and how much power she has. And so seeing them bring in more Lord of light magic um, and, and doing a better job, I think establishing the rules for it. I was just, I was curious to how that would play to, to other people watching the show. Well, no, I'm in total agreement with you. Like, I, I don't understand why if she is so powerful, has proven in uh, in, in season two, like, like, like you said, what's the limitations of her power? Because it just, I don't know. But but I think they explained it at the beginning of season three, right, Kate? I think it was like in the first or second episode. We got uh, that little moment with, with Melisandre and uh, Stannis when she was leaving. Um, I'm actually more interested, really, in, in Bran's visions and the, the warging, because I feel like that's not as anywhere near as showy or fun, maybe, as all the fire stuff, uh, the, the fire god. But you know, I have, like as far as the rules, it seems pretty clear to me from what we've seen on the show so far that... The the magic for the of with the Lord of Light, um, there's always a price. It feels like an exchange, right? So mm-hmm. she can have the Shadow Baby then, but now he's too right. weak. His fire in his fire burns too low. He's not strong enough. He looks physically all right, so it must be like a more metaphysical thing. He's not strong enough to to be able to sacrifice or whatever it takes to to make a Shadow Baby, right? And so Beric every time they call on the the red god to bring him back to life. Thoros channels it, but Thoros doesn't become seem to become weaker necessarily. It's it's uh Beric who becomes weaker. Yeah. And so and then even just with um um Varys, 
you know, when he was cut, it, it was, again, it was a sacrifice of, of this. You have to cut, right. you know, <laughs> you, knew, you know, to castrate someone. And then if you do that, then I will speak to you. Um, so that feels like a more straightforward thing to me. I'm not really sure how that fits in with the dragons. Of course, she had to walk into the fire and she had, she sacrificed her husband because he wasn't technically dead, I guess, mm -hmm. you know, so in order and that blood sacrifice, let the dragons live. Um, but, but yeah, I feel like, you know, they, they, that is still very much a mystery, but I, I'm curious what you guys think about this. I'm actually far more intrigued. I feel like I have a much less of a handle on everything that's going on with Bran, who we don't even see this week, though I don't care as much about Bran as these other characters. You see, yeah. I do. I love his character and, um, God, I forget their names now, his two new friends. The Reeds. Uh, like, the, yeah. yeah Judge and Amira. I love the idea of a warg and how he has these dreams that could come true or that tell him a lot about what's going on around the world and in the world around him. And like, even in last week's episode, he had a dream of his mom chasing him up a tree, I believe. And then she pushed him. And like, it was just like, I was like, what does that mean? Does that mean a lady Stark's going to do something terrible? Or does it mean that he like lady Stark's to blame for something like that? That dream's got to mean something. I don't think she pushed him. I think she was trying to to get a hold of him and get him to stop climbing, and then then he fell, right? She was very angry in the scene. I think it was sort of ambiguous. Okay. She was very angry. It looked like she pushed him. Okay. Right? But yeah, I, I really did miss those three characters in this episode. I would like to see more of those characters. So who would you cut so that we could see them? Because there's only so much time. From this episode, who would I cut? Well... <laughs> I know, that's, that's what makes it hard. No, you're going to laugh when I tell you who I would cut. I would, I would have cut out Jon Snow this week. Oh, snap! How the mighty have fallen! Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm over Jon Snow. He can uh, have fun with his cave woman, right? Oh, but he had, he had some, you know, some hot spa loving going on. I'm sure there are lots of people who enjoy it. By the way, we have heard, I heard from Simon. He feels very good about his decision to switch over to Ygritte. Uh, as the person he would marry. <laughs> well, yeah, that's because Simon's secretly in love with Jon Snow. You get it? But in any case, no, actually, you know what? Uh, I, I do like the Jon Snow scenes for one reason, because all the characters seem to be testing Jon Snow, including her, because she, I, like, she takes a sword and she, you know, goes, she runs into the cave and she knows he's going to follow, right? Because she's taking a sword. And what does she do? She automatically takes off her clothes because she wants him to break his vows. So even her, it feels like she is testing him. She wants to make sure that he will sleep with her because that means he is turning his back on, you know, the uh, Night Watch. Also, she Watch. likes him, you know. Well, she... yeah, she, she does like him, but I still think that she's testing him in that scene. Like she wants to sleep with him at the same time. I think it's still a test. Because if he didn't sleep with her in that scene, then that would mean that he is either gay or she can't trust him. You know what I mean? It's one of the two things. And we all <laughs> we all know he's not gay, so I I, I don't know. And also, like it, it also follows the scene uh, the scene before the uh, oh god I can't remember their names anymore. But they too are tested him because they ask how many they ask how many men are at Castle Bla uh, Black, and he answers like a thousand, and they don't believe him. And I don't think a thousand's right either. I think he's actually lying about like there's no way there's a thousand men. Yeah, we didn't have a gr I actually don't have a great sense of that in the show, but I think he's exaggerating. You know, we kind of tend to hang out with our crew and don't see kind of the greater operation there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but... that that feels to me like he he knows they're going to try to scale the wall, and if he can get them to do that somewhere other than Castle Black, where there will be less killing, and then that would be 
in his benefit. So I think he's trying to scare them off of Castle Black was whereas, you know, and I think that's something we talked about last week, the just over the over time, the disintegration of the Night's Watch. I thought that was a great way to drive that home. There are 19 castles, which tells you that at, a you know, in the past, when they talk about the might of the Night's Watch, there were 19 fully stocked, fully armed, fully guarded castles. And now there are three that barely have any people in them. But, but that's what I mean about this episode reminds me, as someone hasn't read a book, a lot of things that I completely forget about. And that's a perfect example. So that's why I think the writing in this episode is solid, because it doesn't just move the show forward, but it also reminds us of a lot of things we might have forgotten about. Yeah. No, it's really impressive. It's a very fine line to be walking all the time. And I, I think that Jon Snow stuff does, it, it plays so well on the blurring of the lines that's happening there. Like he's, he's kind of that classic, you know, a secret agent who's so deep undercover that he could actually turn at any point. I mean, certainly his relationship with Ygritte pushes him much further away from where he was in the Night's Watch before. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's one of those, oh, well, the half-head said I gotta do whatever it takes. (laughs) Well, and of course there's also, I was thinking, you know, of, Okay, I don't know if this has been on the show. I think it has. If it hasn't, Ricky, it's not a big deal. Have they talked about how he is not willing to make a bastard? Yes. On the show? Yeah, yes, yes. Good. So I thought there was also, that was also really a reminder that, you know, that scene I was thinking at least of, you know, how he talked about, it's not even just his vows to the Night's Watch, it's his vows to himself that he is not going to do anything that might make a bastard child because of, what that meant to him to be that growing up. And so it's not even just, you know, his vows to the Night Watch that he's breaking, it's his vows to himself. Well, according to the show, there's nothing worse than being a bastard. It's like everybody (laughs) in the show can all agree that being a bastard is the worst thing in the world of Game of Thrones, it seems. And they continuously remind us, the viewers, about it. Um, In this episode, we also got introduced, well, sorry, we then get introduced to her. She, She... uh, she she's appeared before, but I don't think she's appeared since maybe like season two, maybe like the first or second episode, the wife of Stannis. Mm-hmm. Had we seen like, her before? I thought she was brand new. She was there when they, the, the character was oh, there man. when they burned okay. the, the, yeah, the seven. Yeah, she was, gotcha. she, she appeared in season two, I think right at the beginning of the season two, but we haven't seen her since. Yeah. Uh, but I, I, uh, I just thought her scene was so incredibly creepy because, <laughs> well, first of all, according to her, it's okay that her husband's che- cheating on her now because even though he cheated with Melisandre, he did have a baby even though it was a shadow baby and he did finally get a son. So she thinks it's like Lord's work, like she's praying to the gods and the gods are doing something good for her even though he's like cheating on, on his wife, which is so strange. And if that's not creepy enough then what about the fact that she keeps her three unborn child um well the fetus like she keeps the the three unborn children in jars in her room that she <laughs> stares at it's like the walking dead all over again instead <laughs> of heads in aquarium it's like unborn children in like oh, we can't get away from it in pickle jars like seriously <laughs> like some of these people need psychologists this is getting out of control she creeped me out and we also get introduced to her daughter who's so adorable and I like how theoretically she's the daughter is creepy because, you know, she has some sort of a skin issue or you know, deformity on her face. It's like, um, I'm sorry, Stannis, look at your wife and what she's doing and I don't know, <laughs> decorating her room with and look at your daughter. Your daughter is adorable. I, really, your his taste in women is just completely suspect at this point. Oh, I don't know. That song was pretty creepy. 
I know, I know we were all supposed to be distracted by the, the facial scarring, but I, with that song over the end credits, I was like, Ugh, you're creepy too. The whole, all you Stannis family, you can. <laughs> I thought that, you know, that's another, that's another song from the books. I, I've enjoyed how they've incorporated more of them this, this season. That's, you know, something that I, I enjoy, a detail I enjoy. I don't yeah. know. I thought his, do- his daughter was pretty cool looking because her skin looks like stone on the side of her face. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, she's, you know, she's got some kind of skin disease, but she actually looks kind of cool. And I'm sorry, she's adorable because the rest of her family is insane. Like, oh, insane. yeah. I mean, trust, compared to her parents, she's perfect. Like, and her scene with uh, Davos, very adorable. Adorable. Nice. Anytime yeah, so- we get a nice little heartwarming moment tucked into one of these episodes, I'm happy. So that learning to read thing felt like it was dropped in from, like, I don't know, a, a PBS after school special, but I was very happy with it. <laughs> Well, and I like Davos. I think it was good that we kind of just checked in on him, however briefly. That yeah. you know that that felt that felt right. I I, I don't have much more to say about uh, Davos and you know the craziness happening at Dragonstone, but I do want to mention, however briefly, Gendry staying behind. Everybody's favorite blacksmith. It's very tragic. Well, you you think it's tragic? I think he's making the right decision. I mean, he he himself says. He says he doesn't want to serve men or crazy sure. men anymore, whatever his speech is. And he promises that she will be his lady. So it's kind of sweet. It's bittersweet, but it's... Oh, it's, it's very bittersweet. I just, yeah. I, maybe it's just because I love Arya so much, but I'm so sorry to see her left alone again. And it's, mm-hmm. um, I just, I thought that relationship, and honestly, in a way that, you know, having, having read the books did not pop at all on the page for me, I think has been very moving on screen. Oh, see, it worked for me in the books. Um, it's been different in, because they it really feels like they aged up Gendry quite a lot. I mean, there's sure. there's that budding romance between them in in the books, and you think you, so? In the book, oh, definitely. I don't know. I, I always thought there was a little more. You could read it either way. Interesting. Well, because you know, the line, you know, uh, you know, you would be my lady in the book when they're not, you know, nine years apart, or I, I don't know how old, how different. The actors are, are nine years apart. I don't know how right. different the characters are supposed to be in age. Um, if the characters are closer in age, that's more of a, is is he talking about the class distinction or is he talking about that he really cares about her so deeply? And I think both meanings are there. Yeah. You can you can read it as you will, but... Mm-hmm. But I, I, he made the right call for him. I would definitely oh. agree with that. But it is still sad to see, to see Arya, you know... Lose another person. Like we care more. About, I think we care more about Gendry than Hot Pie, right? I don't know. Oh. Hot Pie's pretty great. I don't know. Hot <laughs> Pie. I mean, he's a you can bake cool a little dude. wolf cake. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> I love that guy. Well, and you know, the, I think uh, there is something that the, the books run into more. I mean, this is a show that just kind of gets more dour and crappier as it goes along. And so you have, I think these, these discussions of family, I've, lo- I've loved all the references to Ned this season and that we already talked about that discussion with Arya and, and Dondarrion about how she, I would trade your life for my father's in an instant. Um, and so to see Arya lose the little bit of family that she's kind of cobbled together for herself um, at this moment is, is, you know, I think that is a sad thing. Uh, do we want to talk about the other Family said things we haven't quite touched on yet. I just really love the scene with Lady Olana, which I know is a minor scene in what was already a jam-packed show, but it once again proves that her character is by far the most cutting in the sense that she can she can outsmart anyone and win a battle with her words. Like, and I mean, Tyrion's like one of our favorite characters, and he himself is like really witty and really intelligent, and really smart, and yet he's 
I think for the first time in the show, I've never seen him speechless. Like he was speechless. He couldn't even respond yeah. or argue. It was amazing to watch those two characters interact. And I, I liked how she just solves the whole problem like right away. Like she at first she's like teasing him. She's like, okay, we'll pay half the wedding. Don't worry about it. You know what I mean? So I know I just love that little sequence. Again, a small quiet moment, but it's just because of the performances and the way it's written and directed. It's just this is like this is what makes Game of Thrones such a great show. So. It, it's nice to see him get schooled, <laughs> you know, yeah. and I think it's important, too, because, you know, we all love Tyrion. He's an amazing character. But every now and again, you know, you need to have him get batted down so that it doesn't become just very strange that he's hasn't found his way into the, you know, the situation that he wants. And so that I think that also puts Lady Elena on a playing field with Tywin. I mean, I think Tyrion and Tywin you know, have a very interesting and more equal relationship than we see with Tyrion and Olenna because of the interpersonal situations there. But I think that that scene definitely puts her, you know, she's like, she doesn't even, Tyrion's adorable. She needs to worry about Tywin. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned, you can put Olenna on the Iron Throne right now. She, she will take <laughs> care of everything in a day. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, last week I I um I I made a statement where I said that last week's episode episode was my least favorite of the season so far because it showed its the flaws of the show, and I think the word I was looking for was really limitations. And limitations being uh, it didn't have a big enough budget for that last sequence with the CGI, and or there was so much to cram into like fifty five minutes every week, right? And I think this is what I liked about this episode. This is why I think this is the best episode of the season because it doesn't show the limitations. Like it doesn't show the limitations in terms of in terms of budget, but also in terms of like cramming so much into one episode, they do it and they do it so successfully. It's amazing the way they cram so much into this episode and yet it works. And also I just want to quickly note that I usually don't take notice of the scenery and the locations because you just you know, every every week you watch Game of Thrones and you, you you expect to see like, you know, some really cool location. I'm not even sure where to film the show. But in this episode, I mean, we got some really great, great shots of like beautiful scenery, beautiful locations, which I've never seen before, uh, especially with the, the, the scenes with Jon Snow. Yeah, so, the cave was gorgeous. I, yeah, don't, know, I don't know if that was the set or if they found something, but. Yeah, I know the cave was amazing. So this episode, like just. For me, best episode of the, of the season. Yeah, I, I I would be even a little um, stronger in in my praise. I don't think that this doesn't show the limitations. I think this shows the strengths. That you know this this gives you you we've had three seasons building to that scene with Jamie mm -hmm. and and Brienne and every you know so that that scene happening even with you know some something that made it make sense like some sort of instigating factor in season one would have very little meaning season two even you know just slightly more not nearly what it has here and um and, you know it, it, this is a, such a show that's based on on character and plots and schemes within schemes and and all of that and um just two people sitting in a tub or two people making out in a cave or you know a family having a squabble around a dinner table or a, a, a i guess wedding planning table <laughs> these are these are the strengths of the show and it's wonderful to see them come together i, and I do think actually this episode tied in the various scenes really well you know it felt more seamless than it has mm -hmm. in some of the other weeks this season Totally. Uh, we also get introduced to Grey Worm, who uh, is a pretty yeah. cool-looking dude. I kind of feel like Danny sort of likes him, even though he's like... Yeah, that was kind of weird. There was, there was something going on there. Yeah, you notice the chemistry between those two, right? Definitely. Yeah. Um, 
God, so much happened in this episode. Every time one of you guys brings up another scene, it's like, oh yeah, that was great. It's yeah, this really was Game of Thrones just like humming along at its best. There it was so it was such a tight episode, and so much of it was so good. Mm-hmm. You, you know, I I do have a question for you, Kate, or you, Scott, because you guys have read the book, and I, I'm sure it's been mentioned in in in, in the series prior, but I, maybe I just forgot. Okay, so there's that whole conversation between Jorah and uh, Baristan. Yep. Mm-hmm. And I kind of feel like we can't really trust Baristan. Like, uh, am I? Uh, my uh maybe you guys can't even say anything because you guys might spoil something ahead but i just kind of feel like he's a danger to danny and i think uh jura knows it or he suspects it because th- those two guys are always butting heads and yeah, i I, w- I wouldn't want to tip a hand either way but i think daenerys just has complicated questions about what kind of leader she wants to be coming up and who she can trust in that scenario i mean she's coming into a situation where she could theoretically have enormous power and you need to choose your allies very carefully. We already know that Jorah has betrayed her before. Yeah. Um, that That's what I would say. I mean, I'm not going to say anything that's a spoiler tip that, right. that tips anything off. Uh, what I will say is that we, what we know of him, he's highly, highly respected in, in season one, we see him and he's a badass and he's awesome. He's, uh, you know, he, we have that great scene with, um, it was what Robert and Jamie and Barristan talking about, and maybe Ned, I don't remember if Ned was in that scene talking about, um, their first kill or, you know, going to war. Right. Um, he's highly regarded in the in King's garden after Robert is gone. Uh, he gets ki- ki- kicked out of the King's guard because of, I think that was what Cersei's doing. Yeah, the whole Joffrey Cersei, it was like a union thing. Yeah, um, and so that's that's all we know about him. And even Mormont respects him greatly. He was not on the small council. That scene, I think it was, uh, you know, I think what we saw was, what we, you know, the conversation. But there's also an underlying current of Jorah finding out whether he knows that that he was going to betray Danny because anybody on the small council would know that. And so now he knows theoretically that Barrison doesn't know that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they know that you know that we know. Um, and Jorah was set to betray Danny, but then didn't, is what we know. Right. So, I, I, w- I would just quickly add, Ricky, um, what, what was interesting to me, and I think what you're talking about here, is that you know this man of honor that we've heard so much of about his honor, he says something really dishonorable to me in that scene, where he, it's something like, you know, a man of honor would keep his vow even if he was serving a drunk or a lunatic. As I'm watching that scene, I go, no, no, that's not honorable at all. Like, I like the Jamie Lannister approach. A man of honor would use his discretion about the leaders that he serves. So Yeah, no, I totally agree. I, I do not trust either one of them. I think, it, I think see, because if I had to place a bet, I would say that Danny might seem like the most powerful right now because she has, like, three gi- dragons and this, like, huge, like, army. But I think the two people that are closest to her, which are those two guys— Jorah and Baristan, I think that they're going to make her, they're, she's going to lose the war because of those two guys, I think. But I haven't read the book, so I'm just speculating here. And the other thing I would throw out um, there in regards to those two, in regards to, to Jorah, is that you re- remember who his father is. And, you know, that's, that is who raised him. And there's, I feel like on this show, there's a lot of, there's a big influence that we see between fathers and sons. And the influence a father can have on a son. So we very much respect his father, whether he will be an image of that or a contrast to that remains to be seen. I have one more thing to say. Last week, I complained because I was like, well, you know, 
Rob Stark's supposed to be winning the battle or the war, but it doesn't seem like he's winning the war. I'm like, what makes this guy such a smart leader? And in this, <laughs> in this episode, he loses like half his army. and then Because he's his father's son. Because, yeah, yeah decision. <laughs> because he chops off some dude's head, right? But then you see how um, towards the end of the episode, he quickly realizes a way to resolve his issues, like his problems. So it does show that he is a smart guy. So, Yeah. He's a he's a strategic leader on one level, and he's a man of honor on another level. You know, in, in the way that his father was to eventually his detriment. It's a he, oh, he's an interesting okay. character. Yeah. But he he's a man of honor until he wants to marry the hot nurse. Sure, even I mean, though that was his he's one violation of his code. Totally. So well, I'm just saying, you know, if he's and going it's... to make amends for that. I mean, clearly there, you know, he's. He's on his way to say sorry. I'm sure that'll go well. <laughs> if, I, if I had to place a bet, again, not reading the book for any of our listeners that listen to the show, uh, speculation, I'm going to say he's going to lose his head as well. Karma. Plus, he's like a Ned. So, like, you know. Okay. Since yeah, the father passed to the son type thing. I think come season four, uh, he will be without a head. Do you want to have any speculation? Because, I mean, I don't know about you, Scott, but I, I find a lot of enjoyment out of um because i can't do it out of the speculation from people who are watching the series and like series right now and trying to think of what i was thinking at that point in the book and stuff um so ricky do you have any thoughts on what's going to happen with the various weddings weddings isn't isn't there like like sansa you know like there's only there's one wedding for sure right now because cersei and loris and sansa and Tyrion and but didn't they say in this episode that nobody else would get married until Joffrey and Marjorie get married? And once they get married, then everybody else can get married, right? Or Yeah, I'm, that's correct. And, I don't remember what the schedule is, but that makes sense. Well, look, I mean, first of all, there's no way Sansa's marrying, like, Tyrion. Like, she's just going to, like, bolt and head out with Littlefinger, uh, which I guess is Littlefinger's plan. He, um, And, oh, God... I don't, you know what? There is going to be no wedding, all right? <laughs> Nobody's going to okay. get married. The dragon's going to show up at Margie's wedding. She's going to, like, light up Joffrey on fire. It's going to be awesome. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not my, I don't know. I mean, um, there's no way Sansa's marrying, getting married to anybody. Like, she needs to get on the boat with uh, Littlefinger. That's what I think is going to happen. Okay. Because then it would just be so boring. Like, you can't have three weddings, three episodes dedicated to weddings. Like, we don't need a wedding episode in Game of Thrones, right? Uh, <laughs> wedding episodes are reserved for, like, Dallas or ER or Friends or something. Not for Game of Thrones. We need dragons, giants, and wargs. Do you think Cersei's going to get out of uh, marrying Loras, then? Uh, why does she really care? The guy's gay. Like... She made. I she think made, they'd make a pretty good couple. Yeah, she made such a big deal about it. I mean, the guy wouldn't care if she's still banging Jamie. Like seriously, it's not like she, she like, would be sent off to Highgarden though. So a- away from her away son, from. away from any power, away from uh, Jamie if he were to come come back. And I think she also very much resents having been married off to someone against her will. And yeah, you know, she swore to herself that would never happen again. That you know that sort of just removal of her agency and power by her father. She'd never let that happen again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, how is she going to get out of it? She's going to, I don't yeah. I don't know. You know, but we'll see. We'll see. I'm, I'm making noncommittal sounds. <laughs> <laughs> 
okay. Well, any final thoughts then on the episode? We've been going for a while now. We should probably wrap things up. Uh, last week, I also mentioned that I thought it was too uneven and the the way they would have so much female nudity and not enough male nudity and I was just like is this exploitation like I don't I'm not I'm not offended or or opposed to nudity in shows I could care less if they were just going to show naked women every week I'd be like a little suspect but at least we get a naked dude in this episode so I'm like that's cool so you know butts everywhere yeah well we also saw some full frontal nudity that's true yeah, so I mean, I'm not offended about nudity with context, and I thought this episode had it. It all felt real, so great. That makes sense. Exactly. I, I mean, I I'm just glad we're all in agreement. I think it was a really strong episode, and what I think will hopefully continue shaping up into Game of Thrones' strongest season. It's got two very strong seasons to live up to. Can a giant destroy a dragon? Well, maybe we'll find out. That's what I want to know. Pin him in Thunderdome. Who wins, uh, Direwolf or a dragon? Oh, Direwolf. Okay. Yeah, yeah, dragon. No way. No, I I think the direwolf would just jump up. Depends on how neck. big the direwolf is. Well, because because that depends a... how big the dragon is too. Well, That's true. You, you said in the book the direwolf is ginormous. Like you said, like, yeah. the, like it's all bigger than the giant, but they just can't do it for the show because I they, didn't it's like say a horse, right? Bigger than the giant? No, like the people can ride. Like Jon Snow can ride Snow. <laughs> Jon Snow can <laughs> can, can, can ride Ghost. Okay. Oh, yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. So, it's not bigger than a giant, but, you know, much bigger than what they can show. But okay. anyways. Well, thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, thank you, Scott, for joining us. Where can our listeners find you online? I write for theweek.com, uh, film and TV coverage every day, and I am on Twitter at, at Scott Meslow. And next week, we'll be talking about The Climb, season uh, three, episode six, written by Benioff and Weiss again, and directed by Alec uh, Sakharov. And we have a very... Exciting guest joining us. Don't want to spoil that, so we'll just tease. So you guys should all come back and listen to us next week. Thank you very much for tuning in. Please uh, contact us uh, with your feedback. And, of course, we're both on Twitter. Uh, uh, Ricky, you are? Uh, Sound on site. I'm at the Televerse, and uh, we would also love if you have the time to to you know give us a comment on the website or to, to rate us or interview us in iTunes. But, again, thank you, everyone, for listening, and we'll be back next week. I urged him to surrender peacefully. But the king didn't listen to me. He didn't listen to Varys, who tried to warn him. But he did listen to Grand Maester Pycelle and Grey Sunken Cunt. You can trust the Lannisters, he said. The Lannisters have always been true friends of the crown. So... We opened the gates and my father sacked the city. Once again, I came to the king, begging him to surrender. He told me to bring him my father's head. Then he turned to his pyromancer. Burn them all. Burn them in their homes, burn them in their beds. Tell me if your precious Randy commanded you to kill your own father and stand by while thousands of men, women and children burned alive, would you have done it? Would you have kept your oath then? 
first I killed the pyromancer and then when the king turned to flee I drove my sword into his back I don't think he expected to die. He, he meant to band with the rest of us and rise again. Reborn as a dragon, turn his enemies to ash. They slit his throat to make sure that didn't happen. It's always summer. Under the sea, I know, I know, oh, 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 the birds have scales and the fish take wing, I know, I know, oh, 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 the rain is dry and the snow falls up. Stones crack open, the water burns, the shadows come to dance, my love, the shadows come to play, the shadows come to dance, my love, the shadows come to play.